Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. This is the second annual Christmas episode, and today we will explore what the stars can teach us and tell us about the story that we celebrate each year. Of course, we're talking about the story of Christmas. But before we get to that, a couple of quick things. Uh, First, each year around Christmas and New Year, uh, I take some time off the grid which means the next episode of the Changing Faith podcast uh, will not come out until January 15. Um, It's only a week more um, between episodes, so which means you will survive. Uh, I think the world's going to be just fine, and uh, I'm going to be more rested. So January 15, 2019 is the next episode. And then second, uh, I mentioned a few episodes back, Uh, a pilgrimage to Israel and Palestine that I am leading alongside my good friend, Kent Dobson. Um, This is the second trip we are leading together, and the good news is there are still some spots left. Uh, We would love to have you join with us. So if you are interested, you can go to kentdobson.com and uh, learn more about what his pilgrimages look like and what those trips look like and what it would look like to join with us. Um, Or... You can send me an email at michael at michael-hidalgo.com and I can send you uh, the information that you need um, to make a decision about whether or not you can come with us because we'd love, uh, would love to have you with us. So that's it as far as details go. But today uh, we're going to talk about Christmas because this is the second annual Christmas episode of the Changing Faith Podcast. Uh, and so what I want to do is I want to start in uh, with an ancient Hebrew poem and then work our way through to uh, what we understand as the traditional nativity scene. So to do that first, the ancient Hebrew poem. Now it's found in the Hebrew scriptures or what we would call um, the Old Testament. And this is the way the poem begins. It says, Bereshit bara Elohim et hashemayim. Now, I know all of you are like, oh, yeah, I totally know that poem. Of course you don't. Um, Here's the English translation of that poem. This is the way the ancient poem begins. Uh, In the beginning, God created the heavens. Those are the words I just read in Hebrew. In the English translation is, in the beginning, God created the heavens. And I'm stopping there because if you're familiar with the Bible or you're familiar with the opening words of the Bible, we will read right past those words and naturally complete the sentence. And so we'll, we won't stop with God created the heavens. We say God created the heavens and the earth. But it begins with the heavens. And this is what I want to focus on for, for a, a minute. Now, uh, I don't know about you, but for me, one thing I have always loved to do is to stargaze, to stare at the heavens. Uh, Years ago, my freshman year of college, I was in college in upstate New York, and in the winters, there were nights that would just get brutally cold. It was the kind of cold that when you breathed in the air from the outside, your nose hairs and all of the moisture in your nostrils and sinuses would immediately freeze, and you would feel this sting of cold air go all the way down into your lungs. It was that kind of cold. It was the kind of cold that when you walked on the snow, the snow would crunch under your feet and it was so bitterly cold that it wouldn't actually stick to the soles of your boots. The kind of cold where everything 
was so frozen that at night it was dead quiet. This is the kind of cold it would get on an evening just like that. It was also a night where there was no clouds and no moon. And we were like five hours north of New York City, which means we were in the middle of nowhere. And the, the college uh, campus that I was a part of or went to was on this lake. And so one night on this bitterly cold night, dead quiet, really dark, no moon, no clouds, me and a couple of friends bundled up 36 layers deep and walked out onto the lake that had been frozen over. There was a bunch of snow. We fell back into the snow, covered up our faces and watched the stars. And it was one of those nights where the longer we stayed out there, it was almost like the closer the sky got. You could see the Milky Way. Uh, we were all trying to point out which star was which. And by the time that we were done and like frozen solid, it was almost like we could have reached out and touched the stars. Now, there's that kind of amazement when you look at the night sky, just that childlike wonder of, oh my goodness, this is beautiful. But in recent years, what we've done is we put a telescope on a rocket and we fired the thing out into outer space. And now we look at the Hubble through the Hubble telescope and the pictures it gives us. And we're now seeing things that no one ever imagined existed. And the Hubble has returned pictures to us that look like paintings or cartoons, um, pictures of these massive, massive, massive clouds that are stirred up by stellar winds that bring about radiation and create things like the Omega Nebula. And that's 5,500 light years away from us. Or there's the large uh, Magellanic Cloud, also known as the LMC, not to be confused by with the LBC, which is where Snoop Dogg is from. Um, the LMC, and we see the birth of these infant stars alongside these massive, mature ancient stars, that's 100,000 light years away. And scientists, more and more and more with the help of the Hubble telescope and other discoveries and other technology, they're now able to, to tell us what's happening out there. And so now there's this knowledge that goes along. We're not just laying on a frozen lake anymore, looking up at the stars in childlike wonder. Now we can begin explaining how far apart things are in what's happening in the galaxies, and what happens in the process of a new star being born. And so when we talk about this ancient Hebrew poem, in the beginning God created the heavens, we might wonder, like, do the ancients have anything to teach us? I mean, we know so much more now. And I would say, yes, we do know more at one level. But there are different ways of seeing and there are different ways of knowing in the way that we know and what we know about the heavens now is actually far different from what the ancients saw and what the ancients know. We might call it primitive, but it still has something to teach us. You see, the ancient people believed that they lived in this large um, cosmic dome and that there was like this star map that moved around us. But the way that they saw the universe, uh, I believe, has something to teach us today. And here's why I say that. Um, for thousands and thousands of years, pretty much since human beings could uh, write things down, and even before we wrote things down and would pass these things along uh, with oral traditions, they believed that 
that the stars in the sky had something to say. The stars in the sky that I was laying on a frozen lake at looking at, uh, that they believed that they, they were somehow communicating something from the gods. So the, the stars have been the subject of speculation and have been the source for ancient people of countless myths and cosmologies and fortunes for people. Um, history would tell us that this kind of took root in Mesopotamia somewhere around 5,000 years ago. And it was there uh, the belief came about that these pinpricks of light in this cosmic dome were not just balls of light in the night sky. You see, what happened is there was a belief that developed that there was some sort of language from the gods that was being communicated through these stars. And they believed that really any natural phenomenon, especially, by the way, celestial or heavenly phenomenon, they believed that the gods were speaking to humanity through them. And they believed that whatever was happening in this celestial sphere had some sort of real and deep connection to the earthly reality. So they believed that if you could read the stars correctly, meaning if you could read or pick up or see what the gods were communicating to you through the stars, that you could understand what was happening in the world and that it was even possible to predict the future if you read the stars or understood the messages the gods were communicating to you correctly. And this, uh, this practice that developed 5,000 years ago was referred to as the omena, from which we actually get the word omen. And the Bible talks about this process that people were engaged in. The Bible actually calls it <clears throat> divination. And it referred to those who would divine from the stars events that were unfolding here on earth. Now, the people who participated in this and the people who were the omino or the ones who would divine from the stars what was happening, they were very revered in their culture. They would hold court with the kings. They would predict the outcomes of wars and they would tell the kings and royalty and those in power which descendant should replace the king upon his death. These people weren't just like really far out on the fringe. Um, they won audience with the most powerful people in the world by studying the stars because they were a vehicle uh, in the human sphere to what the gods were saying. Now, no doubt, some of you are thinking to yourself already, okay, this is super bizarre. I don't know where this is going. This ancient, dangerous, like backward thinking. Okay, I get it. I get it. Hang with me. This is going somewhere. After all, this is the second annual Christmas episode. Come on. Okay, so that's the Mesopotamians. Now, eventually, the Persians, when they took over the world, conquered the then known world, um, they discovered this ancient practice of divining messages from the gods through the stars. And they even brought more understanding to it. Uh, what they did is they, they brought a schematic element to it, meaning they drew maps of the stars. And they began looking at the structure of the cosmos to a greater degree. Uh, as a matter of fact, in the book of Daniel, the ancient book of Daniel, um, some believe that the sages and the wise men and those in the king's court were actually astrologers. They were the people that were looking at the stars in giving messages to the king based on what they were seeing in the stars because they, they were communicating on behalf of the gods. 
And, and it was the influence of the Persians not only that brought more structure to this and maps of the night sky to this, but because of the power and the size of the Persian Empire, their influence caused the practice to spread into India and as far west as Egypt. Now, eventually, uh, like every empire, the, the power and influence of the Persians waned and the power and influence of the Greeks increased. And the Greeks discovered this ancient practice somewhere in the 4th century BC. And like the Persians, they added to it. They used their understanding of mathematics uh, and they wed their math mathematical understandings to the maps of the Persians. And in doing so, they advanced the ancient practice of astrology. And one historian talks about how within the system of Greek astrology, um, with the math and the maps, there were established rules and conventions. And these rules and conventions that they brought to it would like define regal births, that they could see in the stars when royalty was born. And some claim they could even determine which country was blessed by the birth of a royal child. And these ideas um, were defined, or derived, I should say, from how the sun and the moon and the planets moved among the stars. And it was all these calculations that they would do. And in ancient times, uh, astrologers and astronomers believed the sky was this huge sphere and this huge sphere is what held up the moons and the planets and the stars and everything else. And they thought that the earth was in the center of this great celestial sphere. And that the slow rotation produced the daily rising and setting of all of these heavenly bodies and galaxies. And these stargazers, they began to notice that when they would observe these celestial bodies, there were the paths that the sun would take and the moon would take and the planets and even the stars and that it seemed that they were all restricted to a really narrow band that wrapped around the sky. They called this band that they were all connected to uh, the Zodiac. They called it the Zodiac, and this is a term that was derived from the Greek. Now, um, earlier I said some of you are going, this is bizarre. Now it's getting really weird. You're like, well, wait, <laughs> you're talking about the Zodiac. Of course, yes, yeah, because many today credit the Greeks with the discovery or the creation of the Zodiac. Uh, and I'm, I'm confident many of us, if not all of us listening, have heard of the Zodiac. And they understood this globe or this sphere that they saw as the sky to be a 360-degree ball, we might say. And as they observed this plane and the paths of the planets and the moons and the suns and the stars, they saw and kind of deciphered 12 distinct cycles in the stars. And they divided the sphere that, that they believed was in the sky. They divided it up by the cycles they could observe through 12 distinct constellations. And this went on for hundreds of years. And by the way, by the time that Jesus was born, these astrologers, like those who preceded them, were very, very well respected. They were incredibly well-educated, and they were considered to be unbelievably wise. Uh, the, these astrologers or astronomers, they went by titles like the mathematici, which means mathematicians. Uh, they were called seers. Um, they were referred to as magus, the plural of which is magi, 
wink, wink, nudge, nudge, you see where this is going, don't you? And what they would do is they would work calculations and be able to indicate certain times and certain places where global events would happen. There's actually one um, story of a young ruler who went and met with a magi to ask about his future. And through calculations, looking at the stars and planets and moons in the sky, this magi asked, where were you born and when were you born? And upon learning those two things, there was this prophecy, or as it was called in the ancient world, a horoscope. It was shared with this young ruler, and it was told to him, you will become a majestic ruler. Now, what was interesting about this prophecy is his father was not a king. However, his great uncle was a king, and his great uncle's name was Julius Caesar. And the young man who got this prophecy by the divination of the stars, it was named Octavius, and he would become known as Caesar Augustus, and Augustus means majestic. Now, it was not unusual for something like this to happen because these mathematicians, these seers, these magi were considered to be, in the ancient world, right. They developed theologies and cosmologies and theories and myths based off what they observed. And this is why they were so influential in the ancient world and in the Greco-Roman world, even into the time of Jesus. Now, I'm going to pause again because this is all, this is weird stuff, okay? This is bizarro. And you can hear this and think, this is, maybe you just think it's boring. You're like, okay, can you get on with it, please? Uh, or maybe you hear it and you think, well, yeah, this is so archaic and primitive. People looking at the stars and divining information from the gods. This is all crazy talk. Maybe you're thinking, uh, do you really believe this crap? Like, I mean, you, you really think this is all true? Or um, the whole bit about Augustus, you ever heard of something called propaganda? Don't you think he told that story after the fact to win the belief of people that he should be the king? Or like, yeah. Don't tell me you're reading the horoscope, right? This is dark stuff, man. Big caution here. Um, Isn't this the dark arts? Whatever we think, I I still want to suggest that this has something to teach us. So stay with me just for a few more minutes. Now, here's why I say I think this may have something to teach us. I want to go back to the ancient poem where we began, and I want to point out something that the writer says in poetic form, about day four. Day four is the day where the stars are created. This is what it says uh, in the creation poem found in Genesis 1. It says, Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years, and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. This is one of those times when the translation, um, it's pretty good here, but it's not one for one. Keep in mind, anytime you're translating from an ancient Eastern language into a modern Western language, um, they're not just translating, but they're also making interpretive decisions. And so here's how this verse reads in part uh, from another translation when it talks about them uh, being for signs, it says this, let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. This, that's the New American Standard Translation. Here's a really wooden literal translation. It says this, 
then they, the heavenly bodies, the stars, then they have been four signs and four seasons and four days. Now I point this out because the ancient biblical writers are saying something about the stars. What they're saying is the stars are not just out there. The stars are saying something. I think maybe this is what the psalmist meant when he wrote, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. The heavens, the psalmist says, are saying something to us about God. The heavens, the stars, are saying something to us about the divine. It's interesting to note that in the, uh, in the book of Job, the, the writer of Job makes a reference to the constellations. In Job 38, God is speaking. And God is speaking to Job and says, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or the Pleiades? And this is connected, this word is connected specifically to the map of the stars referring to the 12 constellations. Can you bind the chains of the constellations? Can you basically make them move all in sync? Can you keep them together is what God is saying. Can you loosen Orion's belt? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? And the word constellations there is the word Mazarot, which is a word that was connected later to the 12 signs of the zodiac. And so there's something here, even in the poetry of Job, in which God is speaking to him, where there's these references to these signs and constellations and what's happening in the sky and God's involvement with it. He's saying, do you, do you know the law of the heavens? Do you know what I brought about? The, the reference is the constellations, the 12 signs, the signs of the zodiac, the signs in the sky, and God's control and interaction with them. Remember, the person writing the Psalms, the person writing the book of Job, they would have been informed by this idea uh, that we find in this ancient poem in Genesis chapter 1, that the stars are four signs and four seasons in four days and years that the signs are not just to give light but they're actually giving us signs they're saying something to us about the divine and the divine is saying something to us through them it, it should be no surprise then that we come across a story like the one that we find in the book of numbers there's a fascinating story here about a man named balaam now the ancient philosopher philo refers to Balaam as a magus, or which would be the uh, singular of the plural magi. So he's a magus. He's a, he's a divines the stars. He's a seer. He's a mathematician. He's someone who reads the stars. Balaam, we learn, is hired by a king called Balak. Who, and Balak is threatened by the people of Israel. And so the king calls for Balaam and says to Balaam, this magus, this seer, this magician, this mathematician, he says, I need you to curse Israel. And as the story goes, Balaam is on his way to curse Israel, and he's riding his donkey. And his donkey uh, sees this angel in the path and won't move forward. And so Balaam starts beating the crap out of his donkey. 
And uh, the best part is the donkey starts speaking to him. He's like, dude, what are you, what are you doing? Um, and the donkey begins speaking to Balaam on behalf of God. And uh, if you read it in the King James English, it talks about the, how Balaam's ass speaks to him. And the best joke I've ever uh, cracked in the platform is that thousands of years ago, God chose to speak through an ass. And then pointing at myself, I said, and thousands of years later, he still does. <laughs> oh, that's a good seminary joke. Nonetheless, it's a bit odd um, that God's not only speaking through Balaam's donkey, but then it says Balaam goes out to curse Israel, but he can't do it. Now, this is what's interesting. Balaam is a magus. Balaam is reading the stars. He can't curse Israel. And that's a little bit odd that he just like can't do it. And some suggest that the reason he couldn't curse Israel is he could only speak what he witnessed in the heavens. That it was like possible that Balaam, in looking at the heavens and divining what was happening in the stars, couldn't actually bring himself to curse Israel. He could only bless Israel. Like it raises the question, was Balaam seeing something in the sky and going like, no, this is, the sky's not calling me to curse. The sky's calling me to bless. Is it possible he spoke only what he saw in the star maps? One of Balaam's prophecies uh, when he blesses Israel was this. He said, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the people of Sheth. Edom will be conquered. Seir, the capital of Edom, his enemy will be conquered. But Israel will grow strong. A ruler will come out of Jacob and destroy the survivors of the city. Now, if Balaam is a seer, a magus, a diviner, a mathematician, and he speaks of a star, he may actually be speaking far more literally than we would think reading this in our modern context. A pagan astrologer looking at the heavens and giving a prophecy that favors the people of Israel may actually have been referring to an actual star. Now, this is not the last time we come across a story about some ruler coming up out of Israel, threatening Edom and being prophesied about by pagan astrologers to a king who feels threatened by Israel. Follow me here. Fast forward from Numbers all the way up to Matthew's Gospel. Matthew tells a story not just about one Magus, but three, and we call them Magi from the East, or the wise men. And many believe that these Magi from the East were actually from Persia, and even though the Greco-Roman world had, had advanced this idea of astrology, it still was centered and rooted in Persia. They were pagan astrologers. Mind you, these are educated mathematicians, well-respected, the kind of people who would have held court with kings, and they were masters of the zodiac. And they, according to Matthew's gospel in chapter 2, show up in Israel and are given an audience with King Herod, and they ask him, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Now remember, Historians have already told us that these ancient uh, magicians or ancient mathematicians or ancient diviners, whatever you want to call them, they believed they could look at the stars and 
could see not only regal or royal births, but they could also see the nation that was blessed by them. So these ancient astrologers show up in Israel, go to the king and say, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? And then they say this, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And here's what's interesting. They stand before Herod asking this question, and Matthew tells us Herod was disturbed. Herod is not disturbed because they used the Zodiac. Herod is not disturbed because they were pagan astrologers. Herod is not disturbed because somehow this is all sorts of wrong. Herod is disturbed because they were looking for the one who was born king of the Jews. And king of the Jews was Herod's title. But Herod was not born king of the Jews. Herod bought the title king of the Jews. You see, he was disturbed because they saw the star rise, just like Balaam talked about in Numbers. And they're speaking about a ruler. And this ruler, this star, is one who would lead to the conquering of Edom. And Herod was an Edomian or an Edomite. His heritage was from Edom. Mind exploding right now. So you have these ancient astrologers who come and in a way repeat a prophecy that was first spoken of by an ancient pagan astrologer. So hang on a second. Let's let's think about this. These pagan astrologers, students of the Zodiac, these seers, these magi, they are the ones, the first ones in Matthew's gospel who find Jesus. And they do it And the connection in the text is to some other dude who practiced divinization and astrology who had a talking donkey. You cannot (laughs) make this stuff up. This is why, by the way, the Bible is so bizarre and backward and unusual and weird and has all sorts of WTF-ness attached to it and also why I'm so enamored by this book. It's so bizarre that these wise men that we put uh, like alongside the shepherds in our nativity scenes all over our houses, they use a horoscope to find Jesus. This totally messes up the nativity scene just a little bit. Now, some of you are still in the place of like, wait a second, are you, are you endorsing the horoscope? By the way, if that's your question, you're missing the point right now. Some of you are like, dude, just, just give me Christmas carols. Um, let's just sing like Hark the Herald, Angels Sing, whatever. But let's do that. Um, but here's what's interesting. Matthew in his gospel ties these pagan astrologers to this ancient prophecy that was given by a pagan astrologer. And Matthew tells us they use their pagan astrology, they use their knowledge of the zodiac, all so they could find Jesus. That, that the signs in their heavens led them to the Christ child. I wonder, like, what what were the conversations with Mary like? I mean, Mary is this Mediterranean Jewish peasant girl. And she's with Joseph, who we know to be this observant, faithful Jewish fellow. I mean, what, what were they saying? Like, hey, yeah, no. So we found him because we've been tracking these stars. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with retrograde motion and what happens every 12 years. Like, what are they saying? Actually, though, what did Mary say to them? Like, did she say, 
Yeah, no, I just wrote this song based off of Hannah's song and Samuel, and it's going to be super popular someday. People are going to call it the Magnificat. Like, did she talk about being visited by an angel? Did she talk about what the name Jesus meant and why they named him that? Did she talk about the falling and risings, rising of empires? Uh, it, what a contrast. Mary and Joseph, this poor peasant Jewish couple giving birth to the Jewish Messiah, sitting with these incredibly educated, probably pretty wealthy uh, astrologers from a culture far different from theirs. You see, I, I think about the contrast in that meeting. And I just think, man, God, God uses all things in all places with all people to speak to them because th this is this is what I believe. Uh, this is one of the things I believe this has to teach us. God is always speaking. The problem is, is that we are often not listening. God is always on the move. Uh, we just often don't have the eyes to see it. And, and see, I think the Magi, I think they learned something about God because of their conversation with Mary and Joseph and their son. You see, we seem bent in our day and age on telling people, like, this is where you're wrong, this is where you're mistaken, or this is why I'm right. Trust me, I get emails and comments all the time on this is why you're wrong and this is why I'm right. But here's what's interesting. God takes what people know and often seems to lead them toward, God, toward God's own self. And as if that's not enough, God takes what these ancient magicians, magi, magus, seers, diviners know, and he leads them to a boy named Jesus, who we call the Savior of the world, Emmanuel, God with us, who would bring peace to all on whom his favor rests. Central to the Christmas story, central to our nativity scenes, is a story about astrologers who follow pagan myths led before a boy named Jesus. Oh, if that's not more beautiful than anything you've ever heard, I don't know what is. And it makes me wonder, is it possible that what we've done, and I think we maybe even have done it especially around Christmas, that we've created a world that we expect God to fit within? Like we have our theology, we have our thinking, we have our picture of who Jesus was. And of course, Mary had blonde hair and looked more like Miss Sweden than she did a Middle Eastern woman. And we just, like, we think God has to fit in it. And if it's outside of this boundary, then it's not of God. Okay, hang on a second. Let's back that up. Would we ever put pagan astrologers from an ancient Eastern world into the story that God is telling about his son Jesus? I I'm guessing the answer is mm, no. How often do we create a world and expect God to fit in it? And is it possible we believe that God works through our methods, in our message, in our culture, in our way of thinking, and God only works through those things? Or is it possible that God works in ways and God works in places that are so far outside of our expectations? I sure hope God does. I mean, who would look for a king? Who would look for a king that was born to a couple of peasants from a town that no one had ever heard of?
Who would look for a king born and placed into a feeding trough for animals? Who would look for a king who would one day hang naked while bleeding and nailed to an instrument of torture that we call a cross? You see, if Christmas teaches us anything, it's that we've missed the scandal of how God works. And one thing I often see is how often we create boundaries in which we think God can work and only work within these boundaries. But here's what I'm learning every single day. God doesn't give a crap about the boundaries that we create half as much as we do. And it's possible when we create those boundaries, when we say, here you may go and no further, here is where God's work happens and nowhere else, it's possible we are actually the ones who lose when we do this. Because in doing this, we miss the joy and the mystery and the beauty of how God works in our world and how God has always worked in our world. Maybe this is why the people who are so intent on creating the boundaries for God are often the ones who are also the most miserable because they miss the joy and the beauty and the mystery and the wonder and the <gasps> no wayness of how God works in our world. And so, my friends, my prayer is that we would have eyes to see the ways in which God has always been working in our world in unlikely ways in unlikely places, in unlikely circumstances, through unlikely people. And my prayer is that we would have the eyes to see this so that we might come to meet a child once again. A child who promises peace and wholeness and healing and liberation and salvation for all of us. And so with that, I pray that you would have a merry and happy Christmas and have a wonderful new year. And until next year, as always, much love and peace be with you.